but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hey guys. Hi everyone. You're so punctual. So the first few minutes of this, we're going to, last time we kind of went into it right away and we're kind of scrambling. It's going to be a little bit more light or fair to start, give folks a chance to get into the, into the Zoom and then we'll head into the agenda. Mostly the meat of the agenda will be having to do with uh, one Mr. Dominic team. <laughs> not, not only. I mean, not, not only, but like we haven't covered that at all on the show. There's going to be a game later on that we will play. We're not going to burden you with that this time. It's kind of like in the vein of a newlywed game. I was big on uh, game shows growing up. I was watching the Game Show Network all the time. And so we have 10 categories that we're each going to guess what the other person's answer is. Uh, if that's interesting to you at, at all. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's uh, a little self-indulgent, you know, but hopefully it'll be fun. This is how the, the prepping for this stuff goes. Like I put stuff on the agenda and then he, he goes, is anybody going to give a shit about that? Like literally every single thing that we add. Uh, first off, y'all watched Naomi today with Stephanos? Yes, Kill Bill is an old movie I discovered today. I was in college when Kill Bill came out, so it made me feel really upset. Um, <laughs> I loved Steph. I was actually like taking notes, writing down the name of Kill Bill so he could remember to watch it. I'm shocked that he hadn't seen it. Feel free to use the chat a lot while you're in the in the meeting. For now, if you want, you can unmute yourself and, and talk with us. We'll let you know when we're getting into like the more serious stuff and then we'll mute the room. Yeah, uh, that's, not that's to be rude or anything. Um, is Serena still on live? She was doing like her home shopping network thing starting at five, I think. Venus, I mean, Venus has that stuff on lock. Like, her lives are so professional. She's got an assistant feeding her questions. It's amazing. She's so, like, this is obviously her future career if she wants it. If you watched, I know a lot of you said you didn't watch it, but if you watched the Naomi thing with Stephanos today, I don't see how you come away from watching that with a better impression of him. <laughs> like, he came off as such a dick. <laughs> okay. At every turn. I, I personally am not going to go that far. I felt like he was, it was awkward. I'm not going to say he was a dick, a D. <laughs> well, what's, we, what's, we have family what's on this call, so I feel like I, feel like I have to censor about? my language. Um, yeah, he's just a little weird, right? He, Naomi posed some very straightforward questions and he kind of failed to answer them in any kind of normal way. Hmm. Right, that, that was my takeaway from it. They've had this song and dance going on for about a year now, where initially folks were like, what's going on? Are they seeing each other? And it just became very clear to me from the start that it's this high school thing where the boy is so afraid and, well, I don't take words out of Naomi's mouth, but afraid in a different way, you know, like hmm. intimidated, doesn't know how to act around her. And at the end of it, he's like, you know, I know you thought that I was afraid, but I hope this shows that it, that I wasn't. Like, dude, nobody's nobody's coming for you for being afraid of Naomi mm. Osaka. You know, just chill. Naomi did well, though. I, as someone who is not naturally um, predisposed to like being on video, like I'm talking about myself now. 
I, I think Naomi trying to get better and getting more, um, like forcing herself to be more extroverted is really cool and really scary for somebody who's, who's not naturally like that. You'll probably never make the switch. Like your personality is not going to change, but it's really like to jump out of her comfort zone like that and actually be pretty good at it. That's cool. Well, I enjoy it. She's also the highest paid woman in sports right now. Yes, she is that girl right now. It didn't take Philip and John long to start with the mess. They asked, did she ask about Elon? She sure did. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't even a question. It was like, you might get mad at me for asking this question, but you like Elon Musk, period. And that was it. Like, that was the question. Um, and he talked about, I don't know, how we... Oh, Elon oh, he's a genius. is the first guy like outside of NASA to invent rockets. And I don't know. I have no idea what he was talking about. But you can go watch it back if you're interested. <laughs> Emmett asked something that I've seen so many different takes on. When Venus had Naomi on her Instagram for the workout, he says, I'm happily surprised at the banter between Venus and Naomi. Whereas a lot of folks were like, that was painful AF to watch. Oh, but like if you know Naomi... You know mm -hmm. that this is a huge improvement. Yeah, I think <laughs> it know? speaks to more Venus being unprepared for that situation. Oh, okay. As I was when I interviewed <laughs> Naomi one-on-one -on -one, like yeah. a few years ago. It's, it, it's actually a, a harrowing experience if you're not prepared. Mm -hmm. Because everything that you think about what an interview will be and how you prepare yourself is completely out the door. There, there are no rules. Yeah. Be well, she's really funny, but in a in an unconventional way, like a very awkward way. The curious Andy Mori mm -hmm. mess happened. Never heard of it. Yeah, I don't. You're gonna have to do better than that. <laughs> I don't, I tried to avoid it because Nick, like, oh my God, Nick is just so in need of attention, right? Even when he's right, you want to disagree with him. He was very right in to our minds about the Dominic team stuff. Yeah. Like, but in other ways, he's a totally out of pocket. You have to take the full package with Nick. You have to, because like there's so much principle and there's so much good with him. And then there's also a whole lot of mess. Like sometimes he can't get out of his own way, right? Or you could just not take him at all. Well, that's, that's totally that's valid as well. He tried to make the argument that Andy was a better player than Novak, which was interesting. <laughs> that was more like, I know who you think the GOAT is, but let's talk about me for a moment. Because it was like, oh, Andy was better at returning my serve. Therefore, he's a better player. Emmett says Nick is out of control, admitting he sleeps with his fans weekly. What? And Steph wants to know, what? <laughs> he said that? And that is actually true. That is true. He said that. Wait, it is? Yeah, because he just broke up with, I think, Kanskaya. Or she broke up with him. And he said that when he's not with a girlfriend, which he seems to be like, perpetually in need of a girlfriend... Um, mm. he sleeps with fans on a weekly basis. You know, this is a sex positive show. So if it's, <laughs> uh, if it's consensual and it's fun. Safe. And safe. Um, sure, go for it. All right, y'all, you want to get started? Okay. We wanted to start with talking about, uh, really the only thing going on in tennis is arguments over how the leagues should support players during this time when they're off and they're not earning any income and how specific players are responding to questions about it. Reporters don't have a whole lot to do. Tennis players don't have much to do. And so uh, a lot of people are, I don't know, like some people are stepping in shit. Other people are looking better for it. It's a weird time. So Dominic Team is obviously who we're going to start with. 
So he was asked about this proposal that we talked about on the last live, right? Mm -hmm. So it's been a while. It's been over three weeks. The proposal had already been voted down. The idea of Novak Djokovic's idea was that players in the top 100 would commit their own money to support players outside of the top 100, right? They would. It's like an additional measure, right? Yeah. So on top of what the ATP and the ITF and all the Grand Slams had committed, the top players would also commit some of their own money. And it wasn't a whole lot. I think the top 10 was supposed to give like 30,000. Yeah. Some, anyway. We had issues with the scale and how it would right. peter out down the, the rankings, but it was something. But anyway, it was voted down. So like now it's purely voluntary. And Dominic gave this interview with a German outlet. And it's obviously upset a lot of people. Um, some people have come out in defense of him. And it's just... I don't even know if he meant it, but it sort of led the discussion in an interesting direction. He I don't think he, he didn't, did not mean it. I don't think he made very interesting points, but other people have. There are other, <laughs> there are other players who have said things that have taken it a bit, a bit further. They've shared his core sentiment, but then been able to redirect where the focus should be, which is the many different organizations that, that have money in tennis. Right? Yeah. So we'll tell you what he said, and then we'll sort of editorialize. So Dominic said, there are many, many players who don't put the sport above everything else and don't live in a professional manner. None of us top players got anything handed to us. We all had to fight our way up. I don't have the guarantee in any job that I will do well and earn lots of money. Correct. Um, unfortunately, he did go on. <laughs> <laughs> I know the Futures Tour and played there for two years. There are a lot of people who don't give everything to the sport. I don't see why I should give money to such people. I would prefer to donate to people or institutions that really need it. Okay, I get that. Are there people who are more in need? Definitely. I don't think it's mutually exclusive though. Like you have a, a lot of money. If you wanted to, you could direct some of that money to ITF level players. Also, you, you, lose, you lose all higher ground and authority on the issue when you start to moralize about people's effort. How is Dominic team going to know how everybody currently on the ITF circuit is giving effort based on anecdotal evidence from his own mm. time? Like it makes no sense. Yeah. So what I don't, I don't love is this idea that there are sort of people in need who are, are worthy and people in need who are not worthy of your help and who gets to decide that, you know, Dominic team, because he has a lot of money gets to decide that you can give money to whomever you like. But this idea was to give it generally. You've created this mythical like welfare queen of the ITF, which is an offensive term. And I apologize for that. But it's like the same ethos, right? It's this myth of you earning everything that you've gotten, which is right, where... That, that, you know, the people who work hard excel and the people who don't, don't. And that if you don't excel, it's because of your own personal failure and not being able to make the most of your situation or give the best effort, which is why Ines Abu's video was so brilliant, frankly, because it, yeah. it put into such great perspective all the different obstacles that players who come from countries and federations that are not as privileged, all the obstacles that they have to go through. And the thing that she pointed out that stuck most with me as an immigrant, as somebody who's had to travel on a visa my, most of my life, the day I got my Canadian passport is one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> Knowing that I'd never have to pull over at the U.S.-Canadian border again 
every six months to go get another stamp, (laughs) knowing that I could pretty much go anywhere in the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. She has to budget with whatever limited resources she has to be able to apply and pay the application fee for visas to every single country that she wants to go to. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you the majority of European players, American players haven't the slightest clue about what that experience is like. Bless her because like I would be irate. (laughs) I'd be carrying that chip on my shoulder everywhere I go and letting everybody know about it. Right. Like, you know, the the hassle and pain of applying for a visa for one country or two countries. You know, if she wants to travel, you have to plan months ahead, pay all this money that you don't really have and hope that you get approved for a visa. You have to play the game when you go to show up for these visa interviews. They can be the simplest exercise, answer a couple questions. And depending on whoever you get, it's approved right away. Sometimes it can take forever. Sometimes you wonder if there's political uh, things at play with Speta last year, waiting on her visa. I'll tell this anecdote of a friend of mine. For those of you who don't know, I'm, I was born and grew up and lived in Jamaica till I was 18. And so a bunch of my friends who went to school overseas went through the process of getting the U.S. student visa while in Jamaica, right? So you, we were familiar with the U.S. consulate in Jamaica my friend who had to get his visa renewed was in line at the visa office and the guy in front of him went up to one of the officers and they said, what's the purpose of your visit? And he said, uh, well, you know, I'm just going up to get some laptops and come back and sell them. <laughs> no, that's no. not how you do it. <laughs> Honesty is not, not always the best policy, <laughs> but back to this video. So in Ebu's video, I don't know who produced this, if it was her, you know, the kids these days, they're like, talented technologically in ways that we will, we can only dream of. It was so well done. It, even if you think the content was bad, like the actual production was really, really good. And the framing of it as an open letter to Dominic, but expanding it to the story of what it's like to be a tennis player coming from a non-global North country, that was so effective. Like just the storytelling itself was really effective. So she opens by framing it as, what is it like to be Dominic Team? Uh, her as an Algerian female tennis player, imagining what it was like to grow up as Dominic and have access to resources that people in Africa did not have, mm-hmm. you know, couldn't conjure. She said, like you, I reached the heights of the ITF juniors ranking. Not bad for an African. If I was part of your magical world back then, I probably would have drawn the attention of many sponsors and the Federation would have taken care of me. And then she goes on to list Adidas, Nike, Prince, Head, all these tennis sponsoring companies that, according to her, do not exist in Algiers. Yeah, or they, I mean, they're just not coming there looking for tennis players to sponsor, right? Her point was, if she were Austrian or German and had achieved what she did as a junior at 14 years old, winning her, gaining her first WTA ranking points at 14 years old, she would have had sponsors coming to her. And so her path to then be inferior at this stage in her life and her path to then being not worthy of somebody like Dominic Team's money is is hindered. But like in general, the, the video was addressed to Dominic, but it wasn't it wasn't really about Dominic, right? I think it was smart because we probably wouldn't have listened otherwise. Mm-hmm. Nobody would have heard this, right? Like she found an extremely newsworthy thing to talk about, address it to a famous tennis player who stepped a foot wrong that week and it went viral 
think about uh, Shapatova when she first she first brought this to light, right? A lot of folks were like, who is she? She's ranked, what, 300? Why should anybody care? That's the grain that Ibu is, is pushing against. Mm. But she has to find a way to cut through all that noise of people not wanting to even listen to her to then get people's attention. And in that way, it was incredibly effective. Mm. So like going back to Dominic, I don't think he's necessarily wrong. I don't like, I don't feel strongly that top players should be pledging their own money to support other players. It's that the leagues should be set up to support that regardless, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a problem with tennis ownership and where the money goes. The sponsors are the ones who can afford to do these things. We expect the ATP and the WTA to do it, but they don't exactly have a ton of cash on hand, especially when there's not tournaments going on. Like most of their cash comes from tournament revenue. You have a sponsor like Rolex or um, BNP Paribas who run these tournaments who have a whole shitload of money. But if they don't run a tournament, they're not like handing out cash. Or Wimbledon who was able to recoup all their potential losses from this year based on their... Their insurance. (laughs) (laughs) They have more money in the bank than a lot of other tennis entities to to help people yeah so to your point i agree that the onus shouldn't fall on the tennis player is it something that's nice for them to do that could build goodwill with their fellow players they behave as if they've never been in a situation where you're walking down the street and like kids are selling lemonade or you're at school and there's a bake sale you didn't bake the cake or somebody who didn't bake the cake might benefit from the cake sale (laughs) But yeah. people do this all the time. You make decisions all the time to, to help people out that don't necessarily benefit you, or it might help people in ways that you weren't able to receive help. This idea that, that kids these days shouldn't have their student loans forgiven, because when I was in school back in mm-hmm. 1963, and it cost $3,000 for four years, I didn't have any help. As much as, as people want to make this a a black and white issue as to what people should or shouldn't be expected to do with their money. There's comfort in existing in the gray of it all. Like, and I feel like mm. a lot of people who don't have money or didn't come from money are able to exist in that space more easily and not feel kind of pompous about it. Yes, so what? If I, if I don't have that much money now, am I really going to miss that $50? <laughs> you know, like, well, the thing is for like, for a lot of these guys, they're so rich that $30,000 is like buying a lemonade. Or le- um, like, less you than know. $50, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, I don't want to like make, I guess I don't want to make judgments about who Dominic Team is because we don't know him. I've never spoken to him personally. It's more about like what his statements represented. To me, you know, like when players are fighting amongst themselves, the ownership can can rest easy. Like that's what they want, right? Mm-hmm. You see it We've worked in restaurants and, and retail, and the boss wants you to fight with each other, scratch and claw for minimum wage amongst each other. They don't want the fight to go upward. Right? Bitch, so, bitch, you have my shift that I had last week? Right. Like, I'm going to punch you out. Like, so, like, you see conflicts <laughs> on people who are really fighting for the same thing, but, like, Dominic Team is, the way I saw it, making judgments about his fellow players, the, the workers. Why not make judgments about how the sport is, is organized? I mean, it's a much more difficult question and it's not comfortable. But if you're at the top, I guess you're not really heartbroken about how the finances are organized because you've made a lot of money, like you've benefited from this. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had a lot of players who said similar things or the same thing as Dominic Team without the moralizing. And we even had Luca Pui who did moralize, but then said, you know, I'm not going to generalize 
And if they ask me to give money, I'm going to give money. Right. We had John Millman who said, yeah, I do not agree with this. But really what this highlights is the system is broken. From the start of the open era, which is something that we're, we've been doing a lot of research on on many different projects. And so we've come across this info a lot. Tennis had the opportunity at the start to get it right in 1968 to prevent all of this by having a commissioner back then or having one entity to control tennis, but everybody wanted their piece of the pie. And so you had all these different tennis entities that have existed since then. And so it was always going to come to a point where in a pandemic, in a global crisis, there's no one corporation or entity or tennis body to be held accountable or feel like the spotlight is all on them. Hmm. And it's even more difficult to then get everybody to pool resources together because who do you, who do you target and who are you going to target other than the players in this setup when nobody knows what the hell is a tennis structure? Like the people mm -hmm. who follow tennis casually, they don't know anything about uh, the alphabet soup of tennis government, like the yeah, ITF, yeah. And how USTA. could you expect anyone to understand that? What John Millman is saying, this horse has bolted. This shows that the horse has bolted, and now we need to make sure that the stable is more secure. Does that work? I don't, I, I don't know. You always mock me that way. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> I'm saying that tennis government is a mess right now. And now is an opportunity to, to fix it. Oh, yes. That's his that's pivot. Right. That's okay. John Millman's pivot. Yeah. So I think John Millman did a great service to Dominic and brought it to a more productive place. So like rather than harping on, oh, these ITF players are lazy and they don't deserve my money. He brought it to like, well, tennis is really broken. And this whole discussion has shed light on that. Mm -hmm. And also this idea that federations should be responsible for players. What, what money does the Algiers Tennis Federation have? I don't even know right. for a fact that there is one. Maybe that's stupid and like kind of... No, of course, there's an Algerian Tennis Federation mm. and the ITF supports like national federations, but um, the ITF doesn't have a whole lot of money to, to spread around, you know? The point is that national organizations are not all the same. Some of them right. like make you tons don't have of money from Grand Slams alone. Yeah. It's not enough to say, oh, well, the ITF has all this money because of the Grand Slams. Those national organizations, the USTA, the All England Club, they also make a ton of money from the Grand Slams as well. Yeah, the, I think they make them the most money. You know, like the ITF is a nonprofit, so they distribute a lot of that cash to other countries. Yeah, my point yeah. in saying that is that the USTA is not the same as the Jamaican Tennis Federation. Right. Any country that has a big tournament is, is more privileged, and Algeria does not have a big tournament. So, like, where does their revenue come from? The funny thing to me is that like everybody is being asked to chime in when this this question has already been solved. Like the players already voted down the Djokovic proposal, but everybody still feels the need to comment because they're being asked about it. I get mm -hmm. that. But you could always just say, uh, girl, I don't know. Take a page from Venus Williams' book and say, you know, I'd rather not talk about that. So Berrettini, Puy, um, Krunic, everybody has like commented on it. Some of them come out better than others, but like, why not just say nothing? And Krunic kind of said the same thing as Dominic team, in a sense. Yes. So some team fans are like, why are you not flaming Krunic, Madison, Sloan, uh, Vekic, all the people on the WTA Players Council, because they voted against uh, supporting players above, what, 500? Mm -hmm. Like outside the five? Yeah. Yeah. Can we, can we get like a official, what is higher than 500 when you're talking about rankings? 
is it greater than in number or? <laughs> I think folks know what we're talking okay. about here. This is a technicality that serves no, no purpose. No, I read an entire article that said better or that said rankings higher than 500. And I had no idea what that meant. Meaning that <laughs> if you are ranked above, mm -hmm. if you're 501 and above. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Let's just leave it there. I'm not very smart. <laughs> okay. The WTA Players Council voted unanimously that they didn't want to uh, support players outside of the top 500 because they felt that was kind of the ITF's realm. The players at that ranking level play like ITF level events and typically don't play the majors, so they didn't want to extend the fund that far. That's what Krunich was saying. She said, if you've been 500 for a lot of years, you're going to be in the red. You have to expect that. It's a responsibility of the players to understand their positions. So a little harsh. It might be a translation issue. I don't know. But th there it is. I don't want to be accused of ignoring it. I want <laughs> to know if Dominic Team made sure that none of his money went to his brother this <laughs> entire time. Shut up. If while he was on the private jet... His brother took the bus. No, he said he wanted to choose who deserved the money. Mm -hmm. So presumably who, his brother who was deserving it. of yeah. the money. Yes. And if you are deserving of the money because you are blood, is that not nepotism? Is that not giving somebody a leg up over somebody else who may deserve it more? I don't know. I think you're asking for trouble right now. <laughs> so where are we now? Where? I don't want to like go on about this forever, but it brings up like interesting things about how tennis is organized and... I think it shows that a lot of tennis players are kind of like bootstraps individualists. You know, in the U.S., they might be like an old-fashioned Republican before, like, you know, the Trump era. <laughs> but let's Some say, let's say, like a like a be. 1950s conservative, like this rugged individualism, like everything you got, you earned, and if you don't work hard, you're just gonna fail, and vice versa. Like, if you're poor, clearly you're lazy. Like, a lot of tennis players see the world this way. And those tennis players happen to be from countries in the global north or countries with a Grand Slam or with a Masters event. Of course you worked hard. Like nobody, nobody is taking that away from you. Of course you worked hard. You're talented. You're excellent. But like other people are too, and they may not have had those, those same opportunities. That might be a philosophical difference between tennis players and a lot of people who watch tennis. Mr. Riley Opelka had some comments as well. Mm. He wanted to know why is it that the WTA was able to pay first round money to their players and the ATP wasn't? And also the ATP directors, why aren't they taking a pay cut in the midst of all this? I don't know if this will end up mm. being the case, but he made this uh, point that at the end of the year, if there's no more tennis, that Gaudenzi will make more money than Federer this year, which is an effective way to approach the topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... You know, a lot like a lot of you probably work for a company where the executives have not taken a hit and hourly employees have. At the company I work at, union members and people on the part-time level are saying like, why are my hours being cut or why am I being laid off if the executive level hasn't taken a hit at all or has taken like a nominal, you know, will sacrifice 20% of our massive salary. That's a serious concern. I don't know about the details about the ATP executive pay. But Riley Opelka does. Anything else about this topic you want to talk about? Yeah, I think we should. Oh. It's worth mentioning what Kirio said. He said he still doesn't understand the point of Dominic Team. He's speaking of Dominic Team 
we at the top get paid far too much and there's not enough to go around. It's about helping where we can, professional or unprofessional, put yourself in their shoes. How much more succinct could you be? Like that was impressive. It's concise. I would give it an A in class. <laughs> Venus Williams tweeted, uh, you're my hero to Ines Ibu after the video came out. Did you see that? I did not. Yeah. Venus is a socialist. Well, and you know, <laughs> I just wonder how this is going to go now. You know, like maybe a couple companies reach out to Ines and say, well, I'll give you $50,000. Here's your sponsorship. You made this video wonderful and they'll be able to piggyback and get some publicity off of it. But then that doesn't solve anything really. Mm. You know, it helps her out on an individual level, but where is the structural change? And that's what we really, that's what we really need to look for going forward. Mm-hmm. We have all these, to my mind, ridiculous exhibition tennis things that are starting to pop up now. But once the tennis mm. starts coming back in full force, are folks just going to be so happy to be back playing that this just gets swept, swept under the rug again? Because there's yeah. going to be a second wave of the virus, most likely, possibly a third. Who knows, we might be dealing, dealing with a whole different pandemic in the near future. We don't know. Like, this is not... Can you just hold your horses and let's deal with this one first? <laughs> I'm just saying, it's not enough to be like, Whew, we got through this and hope to not have to deal with it again. Yeah. It's like, oh, that was a close one. Let's solve these problems another day. Yeah. So the WTA and ATP did actually decide how to distribute the money. The WTA is going to give $10,400 in two installments to singles players ranked um, in numerical terms less than 500. <laughs> Just to be clear, <laughs> they, uh, they didn't give like a cutoff as far as good rankings. It's more of a how much income you have earned in the past year. So if you're like number 45, you might not necessarily be exempt, but it's based on the income that you earned from tennis. And doubles players who are ranked better than 175. Mm -hmm. I found the criteria a bit limiting. How many of those players ranked, so you know you're in my head, ranked 500 and better, Mm -hmm. Yeah, 500 and better, have actually played in a Grand Slam of the last six? I feel like that's, a pretty small percentage. I'd assume less than 50%. Yeah, you're talking about wild cards and qualifiers, right? Like the cutoff mm-hmm. is around 100. There's yeah. 128 players in the field, like not many. So assume, say, 200 people don't meet that criteria, they just don't get the money. Is that what that's saying? Yes. And to my mind, that's not right. Okay. Well, the WTA Players Council has ruled. <laughs> so it's done. Um, the ATP on the other hand, is paying $8,650 in two installments to players ranked between 100 and 500 and between 51 and 175 in doubles. So it's not nothing. It's not what they would normally earn for some of them. However, a lot of people are saving a ton of money on expenses. Some people do not, you know, at the 300 level say they do not break even as far as coaching, travel, accommodations, all that stuff their career probably costs them money. So keep that in mind. Who is doing this right at the moment? When this, this whole pandemic started and started to affect tennis, we said that one of the, the folks or entities that we should really hold to the fire, hold their feet to the fire, were the sponsors. And National Bank in Canada has stepped up big time. Yeah. Title sponsor of the Rogers Cup in Montreal. They have put forth this plan 
whereby they're offering between 10,000 and 20,000 to 23 players rank between 150 in singles and between 25 and 100 in doubles. Also the top 100 in ITF juniors and top 50 in the wheel, on the wheelchair circuit. Right. So if you're a Canadian player who falls into any of those categories, they're going to pay you ten to twenty thousand hmm. dollars. Oh, Catherine's not here for Canadian exceptionalism. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I don't like national exceptionalism, but this, this is, is a, <laughs> but this is not also this is more like a an example of a sponsor with a lot of money who can do this in any country. <laughs> but also, what is the purpose of a sponsor at an event? in regular times to make as much money and expose their brand as much as they can. So presumably mm. a company like National Bank, who's been a sponsor of the Rogers Cup for such a long time, they've established these relationships within the Canadian community in Montreal, and they've, they've benefited from it. And so it's, it seems to me a totally natural relationship to have now that the people who you've made money off of are struggling, you should then help them out. Mm. It seems like a no-brainer to me. Well, and also a bank is going to be okay. Yeah. Right? Like there's some, if you're say like a retail company who sponsors a tournament, you might be uh, in a little bit of trouble, but a national bank is going to be fine. Shall we move on to the merger? Mm -hmm. A couple of things to talk about. How many of you saw this ATP survey that they put out a few weeks ago? Does anyone take it? It was about 43 questions. And they wanted to get an idea of how tennis is being consumed. What are your preferences as a consumer? They want to know how you spend your money, essentially. And one of the questions that I found kind of surprising was an open-ended one about what would make you watch tennis more? What would, you, what would make you support the ATP more or something like that? And they gave you an opportunity outside of just answering A, B, or C to let them know what you thought. Mm. So I would encourage you all, the, the link is still active, to go and check it out. Lots of talk and uh, ideas about this ATP WTA merger. Federer had this, this tweet that started it all, right? And then Nadal piggybacked on it. And then this whole ball started to get rolling. Come to find out, Billie Jean picks up the phone and says, hey, Roger, let's talk about this tweet that you just put out there that I've been trying to get done since 1970. This is literally half a century later. Mm. And she comes back and reports that Roger didn't know 90% of all the shit that's happened. And so to my mind, and why I now am of the position that I seriously do not trust any of these men, because they're putting these ideas out there without having done any research. I mean, this stuff is so simple to find out. Like this, the Sports Illustrated vault is free. You know. <laughs> I'm telling you. Just the basic info, like Wikipedia is free. And so you put this thought out there so casually, and now everybody's scrambling to, to make it work. Mm -hmm. And you don't have any concrete ideas of your own about how to go forward or about the history of how we've come to this point. Yeah. When these ideas were floated, not just in 1970, but also in 2008, 2009 in 1985 in the 90s like one of the other interesting tidbits that i found out and i believe it was in a piece that ben rothenberg wrote for racket maybe that yeah, larry scott with long reads in partnership with racket yeah, larry scott who was the atp president in the early 2000s he 
is somebody who should be given a lot of credit, as it turns mm. out. Because after he finished with the ATP, he then became president of the WTA. And one of his goals, stated goals, was to have the tours not only work better together, but eventually work toward a merger. Mm. And when he was finished with the WTA, I believe in 2008, 2009, the ATP wanted him back. And he said, well, okay, I'll do it only if the stated goal is for the two tours to work together and move toward this, this goal. And the ATP said no. Mm -hmm. And the history of the ATP from the very start in the 70s is saying no to pretty much everything that the WTA has put forward, not just to benefit the WTA, but to have both tours work together to benefit tennis. And so now we're being force fed this narrative that a merger is going to be good for the overall health of tennis. And I'm now exceedingly skeptical that this is just more so beneficial in their mind to the men. Like how can the men make more money? They've looked at all the profit and loss sheets, the ledgers, and they've seen that, well, if the men and the women are under the same umbrella, we, the men, can make more money from television rights. We can make more money from ticket sales. The point is, I don't trust them now. I just don't. None of them. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the income statements, the ATP does make more money than the WTA. That doesn't mean that the sport is more marketable in the long term like have have they both ever been on an equal plane like have they both ever started at the same place do you know what i mean like there was a period in the early 2000s when the atp was begging for scraps from the wta with you know they had both williams capriati davenport hingis they had all this Salas. they had drama they had quality and the men had andre winning a few slams and then like these people nobody ever heard of Right. And let me ATP tell you, as, wanted a piece of that at the time. As much as right. I was a fan of Andre Agassi, I went back and looked at some of those draws in those like maybe the what 2001 Australian Open or the 2003. And it was it was dire, like the people it that was. he had to beat yeah. to win that title. And so, you know, we've already proven that the WTA can be a better product than the ATP. It a lot depends on like who's playing and how it's marketed and what the personalities are like. The ATP has really benefited from the big three and what's going to happen when they retire. So my point is, have women's and men's tennis and sports in general ever started from the same place, like from the same advantages? And the answer is no. No, absolutely <laughs> right? not. So you, it's possible that women's tennis could be more profitable than men's. We don't, we have no idea. And the, the big thing undercutting that is not, is the fact that not just men, but society in general come to the table, come to the discussion with this idea, this belief that men are better than women at sport, point blank, across the board, whichever sport you take it. And that's something that, that happens from a very young age. I firmly believe that in order to really get men and women on somewhat equal footing in professional sport, you have to completely upend youth sport as well. You have to completely mm. upend the way that we raise our kids. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'd rather watch Elaine Thompson than Justin Gatlin. Mm -hmm. He's faster. He's stronger. By some metrics, he's a better athlete. But by other metrics, he's not. All the arguments that you hear against equal prize money in tennis right now were the exact same arguments verbatim being made in 1970, 1974, some of your heroes that we now lionize, Arthur Ashe, was a complete 
piece of shit when it came to equity <laughs> and paying the woman equally. I'm, I'm being serious. Like some of the mm. stuff that I've read about him in the last couple of days with respect to the woman agitating for more prize money at Wimbledon in 1975, 1976, just atrocious. And you can maybe mm. cast it aside as being a product of the day, but we have made no little to no progress in the 40 years since because it's the mm. same tired trite arguments and it's the same arguments that are being made as counter arguments as well and they haven't been able to penetrate the discourse at all oh man john newcomb said that the girls were overpaid well, <laughs> it was still not equal pay like in the mid 70s and the women were threatening to boycott wimbledon in 1977 and john newcomb was like go right ahead because you are already overpaid we're not paying you anything more oh my lord we've got an update on tiago zaibuch vuj yes are you wow that brazilian portuguese on point um so tiago he was kind of on this huge tear he was announcing himself he was getting toward the top 100 he won santiago defeating casper rude who i think was the uh defending champion there and he beat uh, Christian Garin in Santiago, and all of a sudden he gets diagnosed with COVID-19. And I think he was the first tennis player who announced that he had coronavirus. He's back. Apparently he's fully recovered, which is great. Tiago has some suspect tweets in support of the Brazilian fascist president Bolsonaro that he, I just, he, I have to drop in there. He said all of that <laughs> just to be able to drop this bit in. I, you know, because there are people on Twitter who are like, well, I can't believe you talked positively about Tiago and didn't mention that he's a fascist. I mean, I don't know that he is. He just... Um, and this is something that's happening? You yes, saw this on your timeline? Yes. Because oh. I was like, how do you know he's a Bolsonaro supporter? And somebody was like, oh, here, 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 here. Like, okay. I'm there was one retweet in particular that when you translated, his president says that... Uh, our, our democratic flame will survive without interference from the media or social media. And if you disagree, go take an internship in North Korea or something like that. Apparently, as a 20-year-old tennis player with the virus, that's, that's something to propagate on your tennis Twitter. That, that spoke to him, apparently. <laughs> okay, so enough about Tiago. He is recovered, and we are very happy for that. Our next episode? Uh, yeah, it's unless you become a tyrant and change it behind my mm. back. It'll be called, What Good is the WTA if We Don't Stick Together? And that's a direct quote from Chris Everett in the early 70s, the mid-70s. Mid and we'll be doing research into how not only the WTA was formed, because that's kind of a path that's been traveled already, but we wanted to find a segue from our previous episode about pre-open era tennis into the open era. And with everything that's going on right now with the ATP WTA merger, we wanted to find out what has been said specifically and what were the battles that have been fought historically uh, by these players who are still involved in the decision-making now. Billie Jean King was at the forefront then. She's now on the phone with Federer. Now, I right. want to know what she said and did back then, how, as it turns out, uh, Chris Everett is so much more political so much more of a political figure in the history of women's tennis than we would ever have figured when she really didn't yeah, have to. Yeah. You know, if the only Chris Everett you know is the one now who you see on ESPN, like it, 
even me who who didn't know a lot about her it surprised me to find out that she was so political that you know she put herself in uncomfortable situations and it allowed herself to be attacked by sort of the the power brokers in tennis and i think in a lot of ways she was protected by her privilege by her image as this the white blonde girl next door in the us and it's interesting to me because she was kind of this activist in sports but you don't that's not the read you get anymore right mm. like she was spared that navratilova was savage for that kind of thing but chrissy like escaped it and you'd be tempted to think that she benefited from the privilege of her looks and the girl next door thing but that wasn't always the way that she was depicted in the media she was also mm. depicted as the ice queen <laughs> where have we heard that before I mean, these mm. tropes that these tennis writers vacillate between, you just pick them out of a hat whenever and it's applicable in some way, and they decide to yeah. run with it that day. Honestly, like going back and reading a lot of these articles, these men were straight up pigs. It's mm. like there wasn't porn back then and they had to find a way to jerk off while they were working. Like, I swear, that's what it reads like. Mm. Apologies <laughs> for having said that. Our podcast has a, an explicit rating on iTunes. Like, it's so upsetting. <laughs> no, that's because we don't swear on every single episode, but we always have that E. So that I put that E there. Oh. It's by design. I don't want oh. to misrepresent the okay. show. Because as someone whose parents did not allow them to buy explicit content CDs in the 1990s, I, you know, I would be missing out on all that stuff. I'm just saying, I just read something last night where this do, where Frank DeFord, Frank DeFord was talking about a woman's heaving breasts. Like, this is wild. Owen oh, said that women's passion would pay dividends in the bedroom, and that's why men tolerated it. Mm -hmm. And these are, like, these are talented writers who decided to devote their talents to this schlock. So anyway... The next big episode that we're working on has to do with all this. Mm -hmm. Possibly it could be upended by an interview that we've been trying to score for a while. Okay, so... That may happen. <laughs> you, some people may have seen that I was sort of stalking Zena Garrison on Twitter. We did an episode about Zena, and we talked with her on the phone briefly, and she said she might be willing to come on the show. And we're having her back. And so I tweeted at her, and she said she would come on. So... We're going full throttle. So if she says, well, I want to do this tomorrow, we're going to do it tomorrow. So it might throw off the schedule. But Zena is just, I've been watching her um, Facebook Live show, which is called Game Set Chat mm -hmm. with Shonda Rubin. It's so great. Zena's hilarious. What's um, next? What's, I think that's, that's all like the, the serious content that we have. So the next is this very self-indulgent, like sort of newlywed game segment that we have. Watch people like drop off. <laughs> it's going to be fun for us regardless. <laughs> the idea, can you explain the idea? Well, we got feedback, a DM from one of our listeners who said, why don't you do a show where you talk about your favorite stuff? So it kind of evolved from that. Mm. So like favorite tennis stuff, favorite non-tennis stuff. So at least one person wants it. Yeah. <laughs> we have our index cards here that will then turn around and reveal the answers. Yeah. So we're gonna basically we're gonna like try to guess each other's. First category is your favorite tennis match. My favorite tennis yeah, match. Yeah. So you have to tell me what you think and show them what you think. Yeah, my favorite yeah. Tennis match. Okay. So this is what and I and also not make as much noise when you're oh. dealing with the. So yeah. 
Uh, this is what I think Jonathan's favorite tennis match is. Can you can you read that? Uh, 2008 Wimbledon final because Venus beats Serena. And my answer is, what is that? The joy, the oh, joy of that yes. day. Oh, I you. do not go back and watch tennis matches. It doesn't interest me mostly, like stuff that I've seen already. But I could go back and watch that second and third set any day of the week. So you were outside the other day, and I was watching Venus's celebration from that Australian Open semifinal when she beat Coco. And I had to brush away a few tears before I came inside. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit that. Okay, so what do you think my favorite tennis match is? Your favorite tennis match is the 2010 Australian Open final. Oh, I mean, that's a good one. That's not that's, it. That's not it. You might be surprised to know. Venus, Venus Lindsay. defeats Lindsay Davenport in one of the greatest Wimbledon finals of the past 120 whatever many years they've done Wimbledon. I just assumed that the pettiness would jump out and that the starting point would be either Enna or Sharapov. That's, that's what I went with. Well, I mean, my other one is the 2007 Australian Open women's final where Serena allowed the number one player in the world one game. Mm. You remember that? Okay. <laughs> Um, favorite fast food. So this is not tennis. No. Clearly. Oh, you go first. So I have to give yours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that say? Burger King. Burger King. Wow. He knows me so well. Whopper with cheese. N no pickles. And it becomes a really dicey situation based on how he knows that Burger King and if they use sweet pickles or not. Okay, so can I tell you a story? I was really embarrassed to to tell the people in the drive-through like my special requests because I'm not a Chad, I'm not a Karen. I, I don't like tomatoes and I don't like onions. So I was like, it's too much. It's too much to say all those things, right? So I said, no tomatoes. And I got onions, left them on the counter. My dog ate them and got very, very sick. So fuck my drag. <laughs> What's my favorite fast food? Oh, I, I'm very confident about this one. KFC Jamaica only. I appreciate you reaching into the vault for that one. Not regular KFC. It has to be Jamaican KFC. It's right? been half my life since I've had it. So it wasn't at okay. the forefront of my mind. Okay. But it's very basic and it's Wendy's. It's fine. Wendy's original chicken mm -hmm. fried sandwich. Can't beat it. Yep. With their square ass burgers. <laughs> okay. Your, your favorite non-tennis athlete. Mm -hmm. Do me first. You should oh. get this easily because I've been tweeting yes. about this nonstop. I know very, this is a slam dunk. Jonathan's favorite non-tennis athlete is Merlene Ati. And if he did not get Merlene Ati, Brian Lara would have sufficed. Yeah, yeah. So who's mine? Yours is a professional athlete from Milwaukee. Yanis. Well, playing out of Milwaukee. Okay, you is know. Is that correct? I'll, I'll accept that. That was going to be my the, other choice. That wasn't my number one choice. Shelly Ann Fraser Price, the goat of sprinting. I, I was going to put in parentheses Shelly Ann as number mm. two. She's my favorite. And I would also accept Simone Biles. Okay. Favorite cocktail. Mm. I suspect that we may have the same for this one. Okay. This is for me. What do you think my favorite is? Yeah. I think it's a gin and tonic. Yes, well done. We, the judges will also accept Aperol spritz. 
So, well, I, I have the same for me. I think I kind of give that oh, away. So this is the part of the program where I get divorce papers because like all my answers are going to be wrong from now on. I said for Jonathan, Cuba Libre. When was the last time I had a Roman Coke? I don't know. You went to you went to Cuba like ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you it's gonna be awful. I don't know anything about him. So, what's my favorite movie? Your favorite movie is from the early nineties, Edward Scissorhands. Wow! Amazing, amazing. Clueless or Edward Scissorhands? We are nineties kids. And what's mine? Oh, and I know this one. You do? This is, yeah. Jonathan's favorite movie is Billy Elliot. That is not true. What? <laughs> I love Billy Elliot. What the fuck? I absolutely love Billy Elliot, but my favorite movie that I know most of the words to is Notting Hill. Um, you knew that. Mm, I lived for the soundtrack. Like, would, it's one of the best soundtracks that's ever been made. I would disagree. I think, I don't think that's your favorite movie. <sighs> <laughs> my worst habit? Okay, what yes. do you think it is? Yeah. So tell me what you think it is. And it's probably right. There are a lot of bad habits. Okay. James's worst habit is messing with my stove while I'm cooking. <laughs> I will, I do have to say that he has burnt several plastic utensils and containers on the stove. The thing that he does now that most pisses me off is when I'm cooking, sometimes, for those of you who are, you know, experienced in the kitchen, you need to take <laughs> you need to take it off the burner and put it on a burner that's not being used because you have to do something with it and then you you just leave it on for like a minute and then it's at the correct temperature that you need it again every single time he turns off my burner oh okay well i thought my worst habit was complaining that's way too general it is a, very, very, it's, it's a bad habit there are very many specific things <laughs> that are problems okay so this is jonathan's worst habit He's mean in the morning and also most of the afternoon that is, because he wakes up late. So like it goes on for a while. That is true. And so now I get to embarrass myself by putting this out there when I didn't need to. Biting fingernails. Disgusting. Mm. Disgusting. Also a bad habit. So this one, I didn't know what it meant, but you wanted to talk about, so what is, what's your favorite age that you have been? Right, so like Correct. basically, what's the best? What was the best year of your life? Not so necessarily. Far. Oh, okay. I mean, it's just your best age, in your oh, mind's okay. eye. Oh, then okay, my answer would be different. Anyway, so what do you think mine is? I'm gonna say yours is, and the folks now know how old you are. <laughs> so you're saying this is like the best version of myself right now? No, it was before the fucking lockdown. I'm saying that you're happy with your age right now. Like you're that's true where yeah. you are in yeah, life, yeah. whatever, that's blah, blah, blah. 33 was a little rough. So my grandfather always had this superstition about 33 because Jesus died when he was 33. I don't share that superstition, but it was always in my head. <laughs> I actually said my favorite age was 21 because why not? Like as an American kid, you know, I didn't have a fake ID like some people in my family. Um, Catherine says, if I have to listen to millennials talk about their age. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I'm just saying 21 was great. I, w I studied abroad. I met Jonathan when I was 21. I graduated from school and I got to drink in public. It was great. For me? Oh, I, w I would say 19. 
I had 19 and then I changed it to 21. Okay, still good. Yeah, I, I'm in a phase of my life where I'm reminiscing hardcore about my college years. Mm-hmm. High school sucked outside of playing cricket. Like I have dreams about playing cricket all the time. I can still smell the cricket smells just like walking down the mm-hmm. street. But from having nostalgia about a period in my life, college was awesome. I'd love to relive them again. Mm-hmm. Now, ages 22 to 29, I don't want to relive that shit. No, the 20s no. sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly really happy to be in my 30s. Like, there's no complaining about that. So here's a different one. <laughs> a lo- favorite vegetable? Favorite vegetable for James is cereal. Because he has no Bitch, favorite that vegetable. Is, that's not a you vegetable. You cannot get him to eat vegetables. I will make like a vegetable medley, the most delicious shit you'll ever taste, and he will not touch that's it. That's not true at all. I, my favorite is carrots, but I like other things. I like collard greens, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, all that shit. You will eat those things. That's a totally different scenario. What is mine? I know what yours is. Well, I think. So yours is uh, Brussels sprouts. My favorite vegetable is green beans. Okay, wrong again. <laughs> green beans, I absolutely hate. There's only two more left. Wait, so this Thank one is Thank you confusing. for indulging us. Can you explain this one? It's the, your least favorite article of clothing that I have. Yeah, so the concept is, like, when you've lived with somebody for a while, you don't like what, they're, what they wear. Sometimes, maybe a lot of the times, there must be something that you or I have worn over the years repeatedly that when you see it, you're like, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Okay. What is it? Who's first? Okay, so I'll go. So my least favorite clothing of yours. So he loves, make of this what you will. Any, Any article of clothing that is all white loves it. It's probably a colonial thing. I don't, you know... What? <laughs> Wait, so you're saying that... No, like, your winter coat that's all white, I absolutely hate it, as you know. I wore it, like, twice. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say my house shorts. Yeah. I used to have these pair of shorts that were unflattering, hideous. Had They were know, baby blue. For whatever reason. They outlived, really, their reason. I wore lifespan. them maybe five years longer than I should have. I didn't want to loud you up like that. So your least favorite of mine. So- the fact that you wear grandpa dad socks all the time. Oh, my God. Except for your work socks. Those, Exposed. You've, Exposed. Been, you've been bought good yes. work socks. You know, like ones with, like, sailboats on them and stuff. Um, <laughs> wow. I was going to say the elastic headband that I won for free at the Rogers Cup like three years ago, which I frequently wear, which you looks, put, you put it looks it on like now. this. Put it on now. And you know, my hair is getting longer. This is what it looks like. That would have been in the running. <laughs> yeah, it's in the running. <laughs> and the last one is, what would either of us end up in jail for? Okay, so you, you do me first. James would end up in jail for assaulting a car or a motorist or for murdering our upstairs neighbor. One of those two reasons. That's pretty good. That is, that is pretty accurate. I was more succinct. Assault. <laughs> because, let me tell you, I've been seeing what's going on in the United States right now. 
I don't think it's happening too much in Canada, but if somebody coughed on me, they would get their teeth kicked in and I would go to jail. I don't know how far the self-defense argument goes. <laughs> That's it. Um, and really, even under the best of circumstances, I would be more likely to hit somebody than you. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> yes, that is very true. And this was hard for Jonathan. So I said he would most likely be a political prisoner because he is not really a rule breaker at all, but he is very principled. So I, if he, I like that. If he were to go to prison for anything, it would probably be for like a civil disobedience kind of thing. Snapping on a customer. Mm. I work in service and there have been many times when the Wendy's and the and the Chads have the oh, the Karen's. Oh my leave Wendy out of this. <laughs> the Karen's and the Chads have tried it. But we, and you know I'd probably why end, would you go to jail for it? No, but I'd probably end up going to jail for defending somebody else. Oh, okay. Like wow. I, that's probably so, how it would work. So principled. You know, I told you, political prisoner. That's what he would go to school for. Or go to jail for. This one time, this guy who looked like he had shares in the trailer park association was so having that's really classist. It is, but he was having a steak, and I overheard him I knew it wasn't the server section, and I, you know, walking around in a restaurant, you're you're aware of everything all the time. So I'm just walking out to my periphery. I'm like, why is she at that table? That's not her table. Why is he? Oh, there's a problem. And so I look over, I glance at the table, and I hear him say something about how this is not medium rare. And I look at the steak, and it's very much medium rare. Mm -hmm. What he wanted was medium well. Mm -hmm. So and you'd be shocked how many times this happens. Like, or maybe you wouldn't. Like people don't know how to order their steaks. So the manager comes, and this dude just loses it. He's like cussing out the wife in front of him, like cussing out the manager, calling her the C word, like screaming in front of the entire restaurant. She tells him to leave. And so like staff, as you've seen with that video that's been going around, like the staff rallies around whenever one of us is imperiled and we're, you know, walking in mm -hmm. a cluster and he just keeps going and going and going. And everybody's just on edge, like waiting for the moment where you have to pounce. Like it's just out of necessity. Like if this man is going to assault the manager, like you're just not gonna stand there and take it. There's a lot of trash out there. There is, yeah. Mm. So that's it, that's our newlywed game. A big fail on my end, I, I would say. I don't think, well, I did do better, but we didn't, I didn't do exceptionally well. Yeah, it wasn't mm. outrageous. Uh, Shola says, what did Shola I say? I choose violence. <laughs> That's a Cersei Lannister quote. I choose violence. Anthony says, beat his ass. And you know what? How did that end for Cersei Lannister? Did she get crushed in the castle with her incestuous lover off screen? Yeah, I think that's how it ended. Terrible. Francisco wants to know, can we start asking <laughs> questions? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, we're done um, dialoguing. Yeah, that's monopolizing yeah. though. Mm. The stuff. How long have you two been together? Um, we've been together for 13 years since uh, we met in 2007 in our, our last year of school and it's been us ever since. Mm. Yeah. I actually spent a lot of time thinking about that favorite age question and went through all the different ages and the reason why 2008 was disqualified was it was our first year of living together and that was the most difficult <laughs> living together so okay guys so we got together in 2007 
so like after school, I lived in Rochester, New York. Jonathan moved back to the Toronto area. So we're in different countries. Um, and we met up like a few times. Um, and then we figured out a way to like go to school together in Canada. So I got a visa um, and immigrated to Canada. But we moved to London, Ontario. We start, We moved in together. We started our first year of grad school. And it was a lot. Mm-hmm. So 2008 was some of it was great. Some of it was very rocky. But we're here. Another one. What is your favorite ATP match? Oh, that's a good question. I would say I spend less time thinking about that. You know, this should probably be obvious, but I love the 2008 Wimbledon final, both men's and women's. But on the men's side, you know, the classic, the supposed greatest match of all time, Rafa versus Roger. What else? I mean, honestly, do you guys take these classic matches and watch them from start to finish? I know some people do. I, I don't really watch old tennis matches. Emmett does, yes. Anthony sometimes. Um, what's a match that you haven't seen that you wish you had? I wish I had seen Borg and McEnroe at Wimbledon, like the classic match. I think I've watched the tiebreaker, but that's it. Cree says highlights only. Totally feel you on that one. I wonder why Catherine likes the 05 Australian Open semifinal. <laughs> now that's one I would I would watch over and over. I would like personally I would watch that, you know, 99 to 05 WTA, like those classics, I would watch those over and over again. Definitely. Huh. I saw somebody retweet highlights of it was a Martina Hingis Monica Sellis match from 2000 and had a heart, well, co-tweeted with a heart. Like, oh well, maybe this this is something I haven't seen. I'll go watch it. And it was just kind of rude. Oh. It was a six love first set, seven five in the second, done in an hour. Mm-hmm. Like, why? Like this, this is uh, this is unnecessary, especially in the pandemic, to be putting this not, out there. This is not Ms. Zellis's best work. <laughs> I will say, like, I I find it difficult to watch matches where the person I didn't want to win won. Right. So I wouldn't go back and watch a match that Martina Hingis won or Justine Enna. Like the 2003 French Open semi between Serena and Justine, I would never watch again. That was painful. Like, listen, all these matches that they're putting on Venus right now, almost all of them she lost. Why would I I watch that? I have no desire to watch that. Like, play Venus Petra 2017 US Open. Don't play Venus Sloan. (laughs) That Venus Kleister's match? No, I just, no. I simply will not. Like trading bagels and no. And I might destroy my TV if that 2017 US Open semifinal ever shows up and catches me mm. off guard. Yeah. <laughs> like that backhand down the line from Sloan, shut up, Shola. That, back, <laughs> that backhand down the line from Sloan, it literally haunts me to this day. Yeah. Like my least favorite match would be that one probably. Mm. Any men's matches that you like would go back to? No. I mean, they're just so long. They're so long. Uh, And this is not like making an argument for best of three as opposed to best of five. It's just the the experience of watching these great matches in real time is singular compared to any sport, really. And that just cannot be replicated upon a Mm rewatch for me. I think maybe I would watch Andy Murray's like Olympic run. I would probably watch that again. Um, Which one? The first one. Because it felt really magical. Because nobody has time to watch those Rio slow courts. No. Again. I, I personally don't think that Rio 2016 ever happened. I don't accept it. Um, oh, this is, so this is from Kathy at Kvitty Cat 53 inspired by a question they took up on the tennis podcast. 
if you could change one result in history, what could it be? So she guessed well that, you know, she knew the result that I would change and most Serena fans would change is the 2015 U.S. Open semifinals, which I don't like talking about. Sure, that is definitely one. However, okay, so I have two that would really, really like to change. So the first, and I don't count Monica. I, I know like a lot of people have said the stabbing in 93. Mm. I don't count that because that was singularly awful. But as far as like matches that didn't go our way, 2017 Wimbledon final, Muguruza defeating Venus Williams, that was absolutely crushing. And we had, uh, my mom was visiting that weekend. So you had to kind of suffer through that match and just get on with it, right? Um, and then the other thing was the 2003 Roland Garros semifinals when Justine Anna cheated and uh, Serena Williams lost. She, you know, she could have had five majors in a row. She had a fair shot at Wimbledon, which, you know, she won in 2003. We could have had six majors in a row. The, uh, the Serena landscape could have looked very different. And the Anna Justine, or the Anna Serena rivalry could have felt really different. So those are the results that I would reverse. I mean, but, but for tw 2007, what does that rivalry really look like, though? Yeah, see, here's the thing. It's eight and three <laughs> without those. So, so it's eight and six Serena, but, but mean, Serena, subpar Serena, lost to Justine three times in majors in 2007. And I'm not, like, those were legitimate results. They happened, whatever, but it does definitely change the tenor of their rivalry a lot. I'm trying to give credit where it's due. Are you? <laughs> That's not what that was. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Okay. I'm just saying, if those, if those three major matches happened in 2012, it would have ended very differently. Uh, to go back to a previous question, I would absolutely change the 2017 Australian Open men's final. The which one? Which one? Australian Open men's final in 2017. Oh, yeah. I also... Mm. I would change the 2014 Australian Open final. Basically, fuck the Australian Open. Like, so many bad memories for me at the Australian Open. 2014, because I think it would be interesting to see how Rafa and Stan's careers would have been different had that result not happened. Had, mm. Maybe Stan would have won that match regardless if Rafa wasn't right. hampered. Right. You know? And that's, like, that's very possible. You know, that Stan would have won. And you've seen his performance in majors against big three people yeah, but assuming right? assuming that rafa won that match how would their careers look like now anthony asks what's your favorite wine my favorite wine is something red that doesn't cost a lot yeah my favorite uh, wine is the same but 15 dollars or less doesn't matter the size well 750 milliliters or above yeah does prosecco count yeah you like prosecco. okay i like prosecco i like reds and I put an ice cube in them, so really don't ask me, you know. Are there more questions? Oh, so Darren, who's on this call, asked, do you think the tour should wait until a vaccine is available before resuming? And should the tour require proof of immunization? Um, so this is a, a hard mm -hmm. question. We've seen like sort of casual exhibition style tennis come, come back. Like in June, they're having, this event in Charleston with uh, Vika, with Bianca Andreescu, who presumably has to travel from the Toronto yeah. area, from Canada to the U.S. The first time we saw um, that, we're like, uh, the border has been closed and has just, that closure has just been extended to June 21st. And this event is June 23rd. What is going on? Yeah. And then Christopher Clary 
tweets out today that professional athletes, and he's assuming that uh, tennis athletes, well, that's a bit redundant, but tennis mm. players will be exempt. And so they'd yeah. be able to travel. Which makes sense. I mean, he was basically saying like, you civilian losers in Canada, like you can travel, but tennis athletes can. So anyway, you see like the resumption of some kind of exhibitions happening in Charleston. Um, Novak just announced one in the Adriatic, like in the Balkan area. He's going to be doing stuff with, I think, I don't remember, Dominic and uh, Grigor Dimitrov, I think. They're yeah. going to be touring. They're also not ruling out um, spectators, which is wild. <laughs> So, like, they're not currently selling tickets, but they're not ruling out the possibility of selling tickets to spectators. So, uh, tennis players need to be active, clearly. They also, you know, some of them, like, need the attention. But they want to be playing. They probably don't feel their whole selves if they're not training or playing, right? This is so much of their identity, which I get. So, does the tour start back if there's no vaccine? I have no idea. Like, I don't, I don't know that it can start in earnest or you can start holding Grand Slams unless you can guarantee that players from all countries who are eligible can attend. Mm -hmm. And I think the only way you can do that to assure safety for not only the players, but for the people who work at the tournaments is that there is either like way more rigorous treatment or there is a vaccine. It's tough. Like, like American the, players would not be able to travel no. overseas. They can say they want to hold the US Open in Indian Wells or New York or wherever, but like if American players have to travel elsewhere, that's not going to happen. And any decision to, to reopen tennis in, in a meaningful way would require decisions being made so far in advance, not knowing what the COVID situation will look like when those events actually happen. It's such a risky proposition and who is going to ensure these events? Like if I'm planning now and I say, well, okay, we're going to have the US Open in one of the states that looks pretty good, like it's doing pretty well right now. Who is to say that that's going to be the case in September? Um, so on the same question, Peter asks, is Cincy going to be canceled or no? Yes, I yeah, think Cincy that's a is, safe bet. is done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we, we actually weren't going to go to Cincinnati this year regardless, um, but I don't know, that's not going to happen. Do we have a think, question, was the Australian Open 2017 really that bad for, or traumatic for Rafa fans? Oh, yeah, I can say yes. I care about records, and I really, really wanted Rafa to have more than one major at every tournament. Um, so yeah, it was traumatic. And I feel like it was, uh, it just felt like incomplete because a back injury prevented him from performing in 2017? Oh, shit. Sorry, I was talking about 2014. Oh, 2017? 2017. <laughs> Forget all that. Uh, 2017 is depressing. I mean, but... it, it was annoying, but it wasn't something that I harped on yeah. for a long time. To me, it also showed that like Rafa and Roger were both really back in a big way. Like They were competing for hardcore majors again. So it was, it was a good thing if you were a Rafa fan, because he had gone through a few mm. really rough years. So it sucked in the moment, but it's, it's not something that I like think I, about. I remember that slam being one of the most bizarre slams I'd ever seen. You had Venus and Serena in the final and then Federer and, and Nadal. And I came away wondering like how much of it was actually real. How much of this oh. was a real resurgence from Venus that mm -hmm. we'll see going forward. Turns out she had a great year. 
how much of this is Federer back to form, Nadal even back to form on hard courts playing that way in Australia. I didn't believe it. And so the part that made me annoyed was I thought that this was possibly Nadal's last real chance to win in Australia at a tournament that was frankly pissing me off for many years. <laughs> yeah. Also, and the fact that he had the 3-1 lead in the fifth set, it was annoying. It's not the most annoying loss he's ever had for me as a fan, but... Yeah. I mean, also, if Novak doesn't reach the final in Australia, it seems like a huge opportunity for anyone who gets there. So in that sense, yes, it was disappointing. Um, but to me, like, I have a sort of a different view. It was an announcement that Rafa was back, really. And, okay. Ro and Roger was back. Oh, but Darren had like a follow-up question that I thought was interesting. He said, what are your thoughts about the tour starting back, um, say, like in smaller geographical areas, like by continent or by subregion? And then once a vaccine became available, does the tour start back, you know, in, in its normal iteration? And that's, that's something to think about. Like if there are countries who are ready to open up a little bit more than North America or Western Europe, do you have kind of a modified tour, like with no fans, with distancing, with all that? I don't think we're ready now. Mm -hmm. Like I think you know, this whole Adriatic tour, this Charleston event is too soon. But say in November, if you have this, it's almost like a practice run, right? What happens if one or two of these players who are doing these exhibitions contra contract the, the virus? That's going to throw a complete yeah. wrench in all of this. Yeah. It's just so infectious. Like it takes so little to spread this thing. I don't know if there's a solution until there's a surefire vaccine. I don't know. We're not epidemiologists. Like <laughs> we just want people to be careful. I see that like a lot of U.S. states are, are opening up now. Toronto, like now that the weather is better, you see more people are outside and we both have sort of been erring on the side of extreme caution. So I don't know. I think most people are just trying to figure out what's, what's the right and the safest thing to do right now. How long does it take you to edit one podcast show? The last episode we did, which was probably our longest episode, the pop culture one, it took forever. Now that we're both at home, we can split up the editing duties a lot more easily. I would say for the length of a show, it takes 2.5 times that in hours to do the full editing mm -hmm. for it to be ready. Yeah. So if it's a two hour show, it'll take a little over four hours for it to be ready. Plus, you know, we write like the timestamps, the episode description, all that, like that takes longer. But I know that if you're a real sound engineer and you care a lot about the sound, it takes, you know, you could do like two minutes of audio in a half hour. We're not like that. <laughs> Steph says, I think just call it a season. And Are you talking about us? <laughs> no, I agree. Like the tennis season, uh, I think a lot what are, of like what are we waiting for? You know, a lot of folks are resigned to that, but I can understand that these tournaments are trying to hold out hope yeah. for recouping some money. Well, a lot are of they actually you know, thinking about the liability aspect of it? God, I hope so, because they're going to get sued. Because I would, I'd imagine that'd be a pretty big factor to have me not want <laughs> to yeah. host a tournament. Meanwhile, the U.S. Open is just out here saying it's it's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to happen in Indian Wells. Uh, I don't know. Over under on the French Open actually happening from Philip and John. Uh, it's not going to happen in any city in any month of 2020. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. That's just my personal opinion. 
Cree says, let's say the tour resumes. I don't want Serena playing. She's high risk, let alone Venus. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Serena plays like eight to 10 tournaments per year as it is, but with the blood clots, the embolisms, like that, that scares me to death. And the fact that Isha let out that sort of semi-secret that Serena was not training all the time because of the embolism problem, right? That was recent in like one of the Serena Zoom calls. Like that scares me a lot. So Serena should just stay at home. If the, if the only option is to play in unsafe circumstances. Well, we know that they're going to be guinea pigs. Not the Williams sisters, but yeah. some tennis players have volunteered as tribute they to yeah. get back on tour in some way and see what will happen. And I'm, I'm fascinated by what's going to happen with this Charleston event. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't really need it. I know some fans are really going crazy about the lack of tennis and a lot of players are getting really stir crazy, but I don't want to see live tennis. Like I, I just don't really care that much. I just want everyone to be fine. So Charleston, uh, Susan Charleston is, it's going to be WTA players. Yes. And it's headlined by Kenan and Andrescu. And Vika Azarenka. It's going to be at the end of June, I think June 23rd. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, this might be, this might be it. I think that's it. We're only going to take up 97 minutes of your time today. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. I know this is your Saturday night. Some places you may actually have something to do on Saturday. And we, the, we don't. And the weather is nice uh, <laughs> today in a lot of places. Thank you so much for coming. Till next time. I didn't say that on the last TBS Live. Till next time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much.